Welcome to podcasts recorded live at the Center for Spiritual Living in Portland, Oregon. We have many programs, classes, and workshops developed just for our online audience. To find out more, go to our website at cslportland.org and look under the online tab. Our mission is to open hearts, ignite minds, and make a difference. If you'd like to support our center and its video podcasts, you can donate online at cslportland.org slash donate. Allow us to become part of your extended spiritual community. Wherever you are on your spiritual journey, you are most welcome at the Center for Spiritual Living. Well, it's a treat to be here. I've shared with several of you that in some ways this is a homecoming for me. I lived within these neighborhoods and worked in these neighborhoods for the better part of 25 years. And then I got called to the coast. <laughs> and so I've been working in the coast and coming back to Portland every month or two as I could. And while I was living in these neighborhoods and working in these neighborhoods, I had the marvelous experience of having my body completely fall apart. <laughs> and during that time, I discovered the principles that we are learning and teaching in this center and was able to restore the body. And that was marvelous, truly. So I come to these teachings through three stands, strands, and that was one of them. How do you deal with a body that's fallen apart and medical science can't help, right? But that was based on two other important strands, and I am getting up on the platform. <laughs> I feel like I have to stand on my toes. Is this okay? <laughs> All right. Thank you. I'll wander a little bit. Since I can, I will. So... That third strand of the body falling apart came on top of these other two strands that are the basis for the work that we are doing here. Okay? As a child, I grew up in an odd environment, a mixture of artists, engineers, and farmers, which is marvelous because it allowed the intellect to soar and the hands and feet to be thoroughly grounded. <laughs> I was a mother's helper for a farmer's wife every summer as I was growing up, and I lived on the University of Chicago campus, and my mother was an art historian, and my grandmother was the dean of a college and an art historian, and my uncle was the head of an anthropology museum and an art historian. <laughs> and then there were doctors and nurses, and then there were all the engineers who would come over when it was time for dinner or whatever, because that's who my mother worked with. And it was clear as I was growing up that I was going to follow the path of the sciences. And I was a member of Future Scientists of America, and I had a Heart Association research grant when I was 16. <laughs> and I went on, and I did do quite a bit of work in the sciences, which I'll refer to in a bit. But at the same time, about once a month, I'd go spend time with my grandmother who, as I said, was the dean of a small college in Illinois. And, and she had lived in India for about 15 years as Gandhi was getting started. And she worked on some of his projects. And 
through no choice of her own, she ended up back in the States. She thought she was going to be there the rest of her life. She ended up back in the States. And so because people were having a hard time understanding what this little guy with this loincloth was doing, she would put on a red sari and get up in front of groups of women and men and students and explain what it was that he was doing and how he was doing it. But while she was living in India, she had some amazing experiences. She saw the blind see again. She saw the lame pick up their bed and walk. Can you imagine seeing this? Can you imagine being in the presence of someone who knew that was possible when you're five, six, seven, eight years old? Needless to say, it shaped my life plans. <laughs> and what I thought I was doing when I was going into the sciences is I was going to learn how to do that. Because when you grow up on a university campus, there's only one way to learn things, right? <laughs> Unless it's shucking peas or peeling apples or gathering eggs. <laughs> so I would ask questions, and she would give me books to read, and, and we would talk about things like reincarnation. Because I would ask, well, how come young soldiers and new babies die? And she'd say, well, I don't have an answer. But in India, <laughs> they say that they're going to come back again and finish the work, or that they were here for a specific purpose that was for the good of everyone around them. Wow. And she gave me a book written by Dale Evans Rogers, my heroine. Dale Evans, yes, Roy Rogers and Dale Evans, yes. When I was three, I wanted to be her so badly. <laughs> and when I was 10, grandmother gave me this little book called Angel Unaware. Anyone here find that book when you were growing up? Uh-huh. So it turns out that the Rogers family adopted a lot of children. <laughs> and some of them were special needs kids. And one of them was a Down syndrome baby who only had a couple of years to live. And she wrote this book from the perspective of that child as an angel coming into this family and seeing things and sharing things. Well, when you're seven, eight, nine, ten years old, experiences like this become the norm, right? <laughs> they are how life must be. So souls must exist prior to being here, and they must have a plan and a journey, and they must be aware of what's going on, and they must be aware when it's time to leave. Wow. So the time came for high school and college and marriage and graduate school and more graduate school and more graduate school. And <laughs> yeah, so, you know, by the time I got my doctorate, I realized I'd been in school 32 years. <laughs> and that was before I went on for training for the ministry. <laughs> and what 
I found in those places was not a whole lot of understanding of what I was experiencing with my grandmother that were what people were actually experiencing. The sciences were not explaining that. And then, after I had been studying how different cultures do things and, you know, being trained as a scientist, it was like, well, we don't, we don't have a need for God hypothesis to explain that. You know, Stephen Hawking, we don't need that hypothesis. And I went, okay. And so I did go through that period. And I think a lot of people who go into the sciences, in fact, Richard Feynman has been known to say, you know, you get a little taste of the sciences, you become an atheist, but as you dig deeper into the cup, you become a mystic. Isn't that beautiful? I love that. So when some physicist or engineer tells you there's no such thing as divinity, just know they'll get it. <laughs> they may have white hair when they get it, but they'll get it. So it turned out, though, that in my quest to understand why we were making such a horrid mess of our natural environment, which was one of the degrees that I was working on, I found a program and a field that's called this horrible name, cybernetics. <laughs> All right? And in this field, they were acknowledging that everything in the universe is one whole system of matter and energy and information flows all interacting. And that the information was the pattern that connected the matter and the energy. And that the matter and the energy would emerge in different forms based on the information present. And to have this come from the sciences and have it kind of support what I was feeling was really wonderful. And I spent a lot of time in that field. I spent about 25 years working on these ideas and this way of looking at the world and, and the possibilities of it. And yeah, the guy who invented the word was a mathematician. He'd been in World War II in England. And he was one of the human computers. He'd sit there with a slide rule. Someone would radio in, I've got a plane at such and such coordinates. And he would do, 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 do. all right, aim your gun over there. It should be there, and you should be able to hit it. So he was you know, training the gun on this moving target from 30, 40, 100 miles away. <laughs> Well, the war ended, and he came back to America, and he started gardening to kind of undo. You know, a lot of those guys had to really take some time to recover from the war. And he noticed that his sunflowers were following the sun without a slide rule, <laughs> without even a brain. Whoa. Is it possible that this use of information about where something is and checking it out and changing and checking it out and changing is a natural process. Today we call that a thermostat or a cruise control because <laughs> that's what it is, a cybernetic system. 
Cybernetics comes from the Greek kybernetes, which became gubernator in Latin, which became governor in English, and your cruise control is a governor. Okay? And a thermostat is a simple cybernetic system. Well, that was really cool. And so this program that was studying this level of cybernetics was looking, trying to understand how the world worked with this feedback and information, and that was fabulous. But they kept missing things. And so this anthropologist from Japan was looking at all of this, and he went, but it's not just a single loop. There's this loop and this loop, and they affect each other. Good for him. <laughs> and so we began to move into an understanding of how the world works as mutually, what he called, mutual deviation amplification feedback loops. <laughs> <laughs> but it was these things that each one would feed the other and change the other and change the other and change the other, and, and you would have a result that you had no idea you would get from the starting point. Anyone have that in your life? <laughs> well, lots of people have been studying this phenomenon over the years, and it turned out the first book that the, the man who invented the term, Norbert Wiener, wrote was called Cybernetics, but his next one was called The Human Use of Human Beings. Ooh. And when Maguro Marayama, the Japanese anthropologist, came up with the multiple feedback loops, you know, put it out there, everyone woke up. And within 10 years, we had the limits to growth computer models where they're going, yeah, and if you have the energy doing this and the pollution doing this and the food supply doing this, then you have the illnesses doing this and the birth rate and the death rate. And they were going, uh-oh. The way we're heading is not very good. So that was the mid-70s, and I was getting a master's degree, and I started working with futurists on how we could turn around the way we were heading using these tools and these understandings, and still wondering, what about that stuff my grandmother knew? <laughs> what about those experiences I had as a child of deja vu? Anyone here have deja vu? Isn't that amazing? You're there, and you know you were there before. In fact, we just had it last week, didn't we? <laughs> a situation where someone was saying something in exactly the same way that I had somehow experienced before that time. Wow. So deja vu was part of my life, and, and yet the limits to growth model and all of the indicators of what was going on in the planet and all the ways that culture and community seemed to be going didn't connect. And then the body gave out. Funny thing about that. When you have too many disconnects in your life, the body will show up as disconnections. <laughs> the body will always tell us where our consciousness is. And that's when the universe was saying to me, all right, it's time to stop being disconnected. It's time to start again knowing what you knew at 7, 8, 9, and 10. And use all the things you've learned since to inform that 
but not let them run your life. Anyone here had that experience? Yeah. So I learned to go back inside and pay attention to the same things that I used to experience as deja vu and pay attention to those understandings of how things could be. You know, when I was seven, one of the things grandmother pointed out to me was this line in the Bible where the guy who is the only one in Western culture that we allow to do miracles says, greater than these shall you do. So I thought in the sciences I was going to learn how to do greater than these. And it's true in many ways. I mean, we move mountains. We just use big tractors and caterpillars. Right? And, and we heal bodies. We just use surgery and medication and, and like that. So we have learned through the sciences and technology how to do these things. But I thought, and I'm still convinced, and now I know for sure, there had to be a way that we could do it like the guy who said those words. Interesting. Now, for those of you who don't know who I'm talking about, it's Jesus in the New Testament. <laughs> I actually talked to groups who do, wouldn't know who that was, <laughs> which is marvelous, isn't it, that there are people on the planet who have not been totally um, fed that material. So... When the body gave out and the sciences couldn't help and there was all of this disconnect and I started to go inside, I would give myself as long as I needed to feel strong again. And then I'd go and do things. But while I wasn't feeling strong, I would just be in that place, that inner place that you and your beautiful music helps us to get to. Isn't that a marvelous place? Yes, thank you for sharing that. Mm. <sighs> and I would find that there was almost always something f to discover there. And sometimes it would be an image of something. And sometimes it would be almost like a voice. And in fact, for a few months it was a voice. Because I was in a lot of pain. And so I would curl up in a corner and I would go, and sometimes I would go, help me, all by myself. And when it first started, the voice inside started saying, help me. I'm going, wait a minute, I can't help you, I can't help me. <laughs> what is that? Right? And what I began to get was I was being called to help my inner self express itself through me. All right. So what began to become real to me is the awareness that not only is this one whole scientifically proven system of patterns of information and matter and energy all flowing together, interacting, supporting each other, modifying each other, and affecting each other no matter how big or how small, that same thing was going on inside me. That, and I began to think of the heart as, for all you Trekkies, a wormhole. 
the heart, if I could go into the heart, I could access the infinite. And if I felt lost in the infinite, I could go back to the heart and feel present here. And I began to realize that it's all one. Well, that voice would do things like say, turn right here, turn left there, park here and go into this building. And almost invariably, the building would be a science of mind or unity church. (laughs) Never on a Sunday morning, though. (laughs) It was interesting. Because my way of learning at that point was always in reading, not so much in listening and participating, I would be given this brochure or that pamphlet or that piece of affirmation or something at each stage in the development as the body was healing and this inner psycho-emotional state was slowly but steadily becoming resolved and the connections were being made again inside and around me. (sighs) Ah, yes. And then one very dark and dismal time, about 30 blocks south of here, almost due south, really, almost due south, just the other side of Fremont. I had three days in the darkness, in some physical pain, but mostly a sense of total isolation and desolation and disconnect, total disconnect. There was no way to feel any connection with anyone. What had happened is all of that scientific training that said there couldn't be a divinity out there was front and center And none of that scientific training allowed for a divinity in here at all. So there wasn't anything. It was one of those waves. We have these waves. Life, for those of you who like it, is a sine wave, right? But that one went all the way down below the bottom of anything I had ever been in, and it lasted three days. And I would... Every sense I had, internal and external, was, is there any input from anywhere? (laughs) And on the third day, I realized I could stretch my awareness out. And instead of expecting it to come in, I could reach out. And that thing that had happened when it was all curled up and it was going, help me, which, by the way, is what mayday means, aidez-moi, help me. Mm. I just went, all right, if there's anyone out there, I'm ready, I accept and I allow. (laughs) And immediately there was a presence answering that call. And that presence was was something that held me and loved me. And it was marvelous. And it's never left me since. 
And so what had been an abstract concept became a personal feeling. And so what had been, in theological term, the transcendence was now imminent, was now closer than breathing. And I could say, oh, I need to be held, and I could feel the arms of love just holding me. Ah. And I could say, all right, I'm ready for whatever it was. And within 48 hours, it would be there, right? I know a lot of you have had that experience. When you know you're ready, it shows up. Aren't synchronicities great? Yeah. Hmm. The heart, that sense of, that feeling sense of who and what we can be has to work with the mind, the brain, the thinking, knowing. It can't be one or the other. I had to be able to integrate, to connect all of that because the universe is that integration, that connection. We say that love and God are one. We say that God is love. We say that God is good. We say God is omnipotent. What does that mean? It must and can only mean that there is only one power. There are no other powers. Nothing else has power. No person, no virus, no governmental establishment has power. It only has the appearance that I grant it. If I grant it the appearance of power, then that's my experience, right? So all of that happened almost exactly 30 years ago, 30 blocks from here. <laughs> and I woke up, and I went, okay, now what? I can't be a futurist anymore because this is too important. This is the center of my life. What can I do? I can't bring this stuff into my business consulting. <laughs> They're not going to buy it. <laughs> and I had a dream one morning, and the dream was of this beautiful red-headed woman in a white dress with purple and blue flowers. And she came up to me and she said, welcome to the body of Christ. And I went, oh. <laughs> Because at that point, Christ was still not a reasonable concept for me. The loving presence was cool. I liked that a lot. The imminent, you know, that transcendent, powerful, everything is cool. Ah, and it's all connected. I know that. I can see that, feel that. I work with that all the time. Christ? <laughs> what am I going to do with that? That was the dream. And then at that time, I had a little practice that I did, and I, I strongly recommend doing it now and then. I would stay in bed until the, the guidance said, okay, now get up. And I would get up, and I'd do whatever guidance said to do. I would choose my clothing based on the guidance. And that guidance would tell me to turn right, turn left, and whatever. Well, that day, the guidance said, go to 
the West Valley Church, <laughs> that church out there, that CSL out there. It wasn't called that. Out there in Beaverton. And I went, for eight years, you've been telling me not to go there. Today, you want me to go there. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I went. And it was a summer. And they were in the tents because the theater had been being remodeled. And this is the Living Enrichment Center. <laughs> and I went out there, and I was you know, kind of crawling around the back because you know how it is when you're in a strange environment, strange church. And, and there was this fabulous music and, this good, you know, and, and these prayers and everything else, and it felt kind of good. It was, it was nice. And um, I'm you know, hiding in the corner back there, and then the person who's doing the platform work says, well, it turns out that our minister was delayed and is still in Mexico. She's not here today. So we have one of our lead practitioners, the head of our Sunday school program, is going to speak this morning. Many of you know her, Fran Lancaster. I had never heard of her, met her or anything. She got up to that beautiful transparent podium in her white dress with the purple and blue flowers, this tall, thin lady with the red hair. And I went, oh, guess where I'm supposed to be? <laughs> I did not become a member of the Living Enrichment Center, but I did train with their ministry training program, and I ended up being ordained in 93, in February of 93. It was fun. I, I went in and I said, I think I've taken a lot of your classes. I showed them my resume because, well, you know, I was interested in this stuff, right? And I had done all the kinds of things along the way, and he looked at the list. This was Bruce Robinson. Some of you may know him. And he looked at my list, and he said, well, it looks to us as if maybe you, guys, you have completed two years of our program already. <laughs> So I entered into the third year of their program. But he did ask me to do an essay for each one of the classes in the two years in eight days. And I did. And I was glad that I did because it showed me when I needed to know more. <laughs> and in that process of going through the training, I discovered that almost all of the teachings that we were learning and working with were written in the 19th century, and half the students had no idea how to read them. They were just struggling with it. And well, I grew up reading everything in sight in my grandmother's library and my mother's library and lots of Shakespeare in school and it wasn't hard for me at all. And, and so I did my first translation and that was Coming Into Freedom, Emily Cady's Lessons and Truth for the 21st Century. And they said, oh, thank you so much. <laughs> And after I was ordained, I would teach this class from my version, and they would go, oh, thank you so much. <laughs> right? And then we formed it a little seminary. And where I'm going here is all of these experiences supported everything else, didn't they? I couldn't have had the one without the other. Isn't that interesting how life works like that? It's all one. There's this one spirit working in and through and as us that if we learn to pay attention to, <sighs> this marvelous plan unfolds for our well-being. If we don't pay attention to it, we go into that disconnect space and you may end up curled up in a corner in great pain going, help me. Nobody here has had that problem. <laughs> 
I happen to know most of you have. <laughs> ah, yes. And the way out and the way through is to recognize and feel the one. The one that is constantly there ready to embrace us and hold us. The one that is all that is. And every single thought and action that we take connects with every other being in all that is, all the time, in this wonderful mutual deviation amplification loop. <laughs> and a lot of other things as well. Our intellectual training does not prevent us from experiencing truth. It is there to help us take it deeper and to live it more fully. And our spiritual life is the center of our life. And when we know that, and the world is coming to know that, I've been doing a little futuring lately, we're going to be okay. We're going to be okay. Just keep working with spirit, okay? Yes. Because that is all that is. And every time any of us feel that and know that, those loops, they go out and they resonate with people all over everywhere. And everyone gets to feel that and know that now. And nobody ever has to be curled up in a corner in pain again. That's the promise. So I invite every one of you, even if it never feels like you touch any other life at all, just go and feel that connection and you will have made a difference in the world because that's who and what we really are. And the sciences are coming to understand it. Thank you all. Oh. Thank you. Thank you so much. If you happen to be in the Portland, Oregon area, we'd love to have you visit in person. The Portland Center for Spiritual Living is located at 6211 Northeast Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard. We have inspirational services at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. every Sunday. We also have many programs, classes, and workshops developed just for our online audience. To find out more, go to our website at cslportland.org and look under the Online tab. We have a variety of content dedicated specifically for our online listeners. Our mission is to open hearts, ignite minds, and make a difference. If you'd like to support our center, you can donate online at cslportland.org donate. Our website is also the place to learn more about what's going on at the center or to contact us. Allow us to become part of your extended spiritual community. Wherever you are on your spiritual journey, you are most welcome at the Center for Spiritual Living.